Welcome to the More Than a Worship Leader podcast. I'm your host, Gary Durbin. I've been a worship leader for over 20 years, and I've learned a lot from so many on this journey. On this podcast, we'll have conversations and explore the dynamics of leading worship in the local church. The power of music and musicianship is undeniable when it comes to worship ministry. So much that it can mistakenly be synonymous with the word worship. So all that said, musicianship is extremely important in the church, and my guest on this episode would definitely agree. Tony Guerrero has established himself in a variety of areas. His work as a contemporary jazz musician, composer, and producer has garnered him both critical success and a worldwide audience. Beginning in the mid-90s, he began establishing himself in the contemporary church music world as a music director, composer, producer, author, and speaker. He has a lot of wisdom pertaining to the world of creative arts and worship ministry, so I'm sure you'll get some good insight from this conversation with Tony Guerrero. Well, hey, Tony, welcome to the More Than Worship Leader podcast. I'm so grateful to have you on today. We met way back when at Saddleback Church uh, back in the 2000s. So grateful to reconnect with you. Great to reconnect with you as well. Yeah, I was trying to remember which year that was because we did that project for six years. We did uh, 2002 to 2008, but I think you were kind of early on, right, on the Song Seeker project. I think if I think it was 2006. Okay, yeah, that makes if sense. I'm, if I'm correct. So 2006. Yeah. And that was, I can't remember if it was the Purpose Driven Worship Conference or the Saddleback right. Worship Conference. It was Purpose Driven Worship Conference. And we had we had put together this thing. It was kind of like song discovery back in the day where the people coming to the conference could submit songs, original songs, and then we'd put them into this compilation and um, and then give it to all the attendees along with sheet music. And to be honest, I never really divulged this. So I'll, I'll you'll be the first I've actually said this out loud to, but... Given my job at the church at the time, uh, you know, we could have easily just put everybody else's, every, like put your recordings on this project, like put everybody's submissions on the project. But I realized if I took it on to re-record all the songs, I got two weeks out of the office and in the studio. So <laughs> that was that was what we opted for. So we re-recorded everybody's songs for a couple of weeks and then released that to all the attendees. <laughs> well, well, it's so cool to reconnect with you. You're a you're an accomplished musician. Uh, I I know I my story is I started singing in church and when I was young. My dad was a music director, so I was on the stage when I was like six years old singing my oh. first song. And then I learned how to play guitar and started songwriting in high school. So, how old were you when you started as a musician? Uh, my start was accidental when I was in fourth grade, meaning I wasn't looking for it. It just sort of fell in my lap in elementary school. And it was my junior high teacher sometime around eighth grade that kind of made me fall in love with music. So by the time I entered high school, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know what that meant. And all through high school, I didn't know what a career in music meant and the the struggle and the gigging and all of that stuff. I had no idea, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I was kind of all in from, you know, from about my eighth grade freshman year uh, on. Yeah. Nice. 
yeah, I didn't love it at first when I like in fourth grade, I started playing trumpet, but I wanted to quit after a while. My mom sort of made me stay. And it was like I said, it wasn't until junior high that my teacher kind of like brought me into what I found where I found what I love about music. So, yeah. And talk about your journey. Like, so after that, what, uh, did you go to college for music? I did. I, uh, you know, again, I'm a. Uh, I'm a a uh, textbook lesson in God just making things happen for people who are too dumb to make it happen on their own, I guess, you know, because I just I have gone through I went through so many of those parts of my years. Uh, uh, those, I mean, those years of my life without any kind of real game plan, like so many young students I meet now have they have targets, they have goals, they they have a, a an agenda and a plan. And I didn't have any of that. I just loved making music any chance I got with my friends or whatever. I had my bands that I started in, you know, in high school. And, um, and so by the time I was a senior in, in high school, I hadn't thought much about college. I just knew, well, I guess we're supposed to go to college. So I, I applied at a school where some of my friends were going, not because they had a great music program. And it turns out they had a solid classical music program, but the, the music I was interested in, which was jazz at the time, um, there wasn't, they didn't have much of a program there, but I ended up going there. The The plus side is because they didn't have a big program. It gave me a lot of uh, leeway. The, the, the jazz professor there um, gave me a lot of leeway in actually like planning concerts and putting my own music up and doing arrangements. So in that regard, it was a good place for me because I got to do more than I might have done, you know, at a bigger school where there was more competition in that role. Um but I, I didn't finish college because the band I was in outside, like as soon as I got out of high school, the week after I was hitting all the jazz clubs in town that would let me in and uh, started working in clubs. So but by the time I was in college, I was already working jazz clubs in town, um, you know, mostly with my own band, but with some older musicians as well. And that's honestly where I learned most of what I use today is, is playing with those older players. And um, so I did about two and a half years of college. And then the band I was in, we ended up, uh, uh, I because of this band I was in, I ended up with my first record deal. And, it, you know, I went and recorded and had the opportunity to start going on the road. And so I just, I didn't finish college because I got to start doing what I wanted to do. I There are some things I regret about that because, again, had I had more of an agenda in college or things that it took me years to learn, I might have learned back then, you know. So, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm grateful for the path I've been on, but you always look back and wonder what if I had been a little smarter, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then uh, at some point in your journey, you ended up in music ministry, right? With the church. Yeah. How'd you also wind up there? Accidental. Also accidental. So I, um, I, my, you know, I grew up Catholic. I had a um, what I call my conversion light experience in high school where I was in a, in a Bible study with friends I got invited to. And I really admired the guy who was teaching it. I started going to his church and got involved there long again, long before I really knew what it was about. Um, but, you know, a lot of seeds were planted in me then. But, you know, then I got into my career and adulthood and and just sort of. I don't want to say I didn't walk away from having faith, but I certainly walked away from having a church life. Um, 
And then it was uh, a challenge by a couple of atheist friends of mine who started challenging the fact that I said I was a Christian and uh, they started asking me questions I couldn't really back up or I couldn't answer necessarily. And that started me down this path of really exploring, well, if I'm going to say I believe something, I, I want to understand. And I really, for a, a few years, dug into apologetics. And it was through that process that my faith was really solidified. And I found myself um, really wanting to uh, commit my life to the Lord and you know, started going to a church, started playing in the, at a church. Uh, they kind of uh, that sort of happened simultaneously. I was invited to play piano at a church and sub for a friend of mine. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't really walking at the time. And he was moving out of town, so they offered me the position. But I, you know, they knew I wasn't quite there in my walk. Um, but he, you know, the pastor and the worship leader at the time just kind of, they knew that. They took me in and they just walked me through the whole thing and and were a big part of um, you know, my, my testimony eventually, you know, like really accepting the Lord and, and understanding it all and finding my place in that. So I've been involved in some form of music ministry pretty much since then, but, uh, I never looked at it as a job until, uh, saddle. So in 1999, you know, I'd always just been a freelance musician. And, um, when Saddleback called me to fill in again for somebody on a Wednesday night uh, for their midweek study. Um, I ended up playing several times. And then over the course of that, met other people. And then I was offered a position at a startup church. And then when I told Rick Muchell at Saddleback that I was offered this position, he said, well, maybe we have a position for you here. And <laughs> the whole thing just snowballed. So I, I started off part-time just doing like music director kind of stuff. And, uh, and little by little, more responsibilities and ended up full-time ended up eventually being the director of creative arts. And, you know, again, it was all very accidental. I wasn't looking for a job uh, or certainly wouldn't have said I was looking for full-time ministry. I mean, I was happy doing my freelance jazz work and studio work and all that. Um, but it really felt like that's where God was calling me at the time. Um, and then uh by the time so I, I held that role for 11 years mm -hmm. and I the truth is I got kind of burnt out by the end because mm -hmm. the job had become like I said I started off doing mostly music by the time it was over I was doing mostly administration mm -hmm. and as you know that's a, often a bigger part of the role than the music and um the truth is I can do administration and I'm I may be more competent than some creative types like I I'm okay at it but uh, it was kind of draining me, mm -hmm. you know, uh, draining my soul in that way. Like I needed more of the creative side. And oh, yeah. um, so I, I've spent the last, I, when I left that job, I stayed playing at Saddleback in the gospel service. So I, I stayed there for about another seven or eight years playing. But then I, when that ended, I took a few years of not being involved in music ministry and um, and I just kind of started again a couple years ago. So I'm leading a, a worship program now at another church, and we can talk about that more. But that's sort of the the roadmap of where I've been, and you know, yeah. And Saddleback brought a lot of things, like yeah. meeting people like you and 
lot of uh, being a big church and a big platform, it gave me a lot of opportunity to do things that I might not have gotten otherwise. And so I'm very grateful for that time, of course. So you've been on stage in the church, outside of the church. I got to ask the question, what is like the craziest or most embarrassing moment you've had on stage? Um, what I always, my most embarrassing moment professionally happened in the studio, but, um, I have plenty of, plenty of things on stage. First of all, I play the trumpet, which is one of the most unforgiving instruments. And you put the horn to your mouth. You're never a hundred percent sure what's going to come out. So there are plenty of times where I've went to start and it's just a crack note or, you know, those kinds of things. My, my, uh, my very first big gig ever, and this is, goes all the way back to my freshman year of high school. I got, I was asked to be part of the Herald Trumpets at Crystal Cathedral for a Memorial Day thing. And this was televised and they put us on those, you know, those really long trumpets that you see like in, um, medieval times kind of, you know, and, um, and I was right at the front of the stage, cameras on me, and I went to play my part of the fanfare, and the valve stuck. It wasn't my horn, but the valve stuck on it. And um, and so I had to play this whole time televised, where I could only play like a few notes of this fanfare, because it, I had to only play the ones that required those fingers. Um, <laughs> so that was awful, because I was a kid and certainly didn't know how to handle it. And then I'll say that one of the worst times ever was... Uh, I played the national anthem for the Milwaukee Brewers, and it was in the. I was on tour at the time. It was dead of winter, or like I mean, at least it was up there. It like was freezing, and same thing happened. I'm playing the national anthem by myself, and right in the middle of it, one of my valves froze, mm. and, and all of a sudden, you know, like you can't, you don't know until you go for the next note that it's mm. not ready for you. <laughs> And so that was uh, not a pretty sound. And, and that's you. That's you just, solo, right? Yeah, that's me by myself <laughs> in a big stadium where everything is echoing. And then I just have to like pull up the valve and then like try to get through the song. Oh, that was awful. That was awful. <laughs> in front of thousands have, of people. I have so many state, so many bad states. That's one of the nice things about being old, I guess, is I have a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah, you, they keep compiling. You know, just mm-hmm. the way that's the way it goes. Yeah. So I, I saw on your website that you have a book called yeah. "Attracting Quality Musicians." Did you write that at Saddleback, or when did you? Write yeah, that? I mean that that goes back a ways now. It's uh, I wrote that in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. It kind of came out of I had been teaching a lot at those conferences and starting to guest at other conferences around the country, and um, I it it came out of one of the most common questions I would get. Because most churches don't have a problem finding some musicians. It's said a lot of the musicians they find are like people who've pulled their guitar out of the closet after 20 years or, you know, only play at church on the weekend or, you know. Um, and and church is often an opportunity for people to just, oh, I finally get to play my instrument somewhere, you know. And so that was that was the issue is like, you know, I, I have a full band, but none of them are very good. Like, how do I get? quality musicians into the church. And so I just st- started having that conversation a lot and um starting to uh, that book was my attempt to kind of identify what I thought attracted musicians of a quality because there are some churches where they're 
you know, any anytime there's a great Christian musician, some church is going to be lucky enough to have them, right? But there's something about that church that will attract them. And and certainly sometimes it's the pastor, it's it's uh it might be a the family program or whatever. There's those kinds of things. But in terms of what I knew I could speak to, it was um what are the types of programs that would attract a musician of quality? Because quality musicians tend to want to be part of quality music. And, um, you know, what are the things that we as leaders could put in place to start working towards that? I do think that um, it's, uh, it's, how do I want to put it? I, I think it's required of us as leaders that we are pursuing quality. And so one of the questions I often ask um, to worship leaders or anybody who's on staff, like, are you better at your task? Like whether you're a guitar player, singer, whatever, are you better at it now than you were when you took the job? Hmm. Because if you're not, let's say you've been on the job a year or five year, if five years, if it, in that time you haven't also worked on improving your craft, right there, the example's not being set for the rest of the team. Hmm. And so I do find that uh, we have to set the pace in terms of pursuing quality. And again, it's not about that uh, I, you're going to play guitar like Phil Kage or I'm going to play trumpet like Wynton Marsalis. It's that we each have an inherent best we can aim for. Yeah. And it's incumbent on us. And I believe scripture demands that we pursue the best uh, that we can. The minute we start slacking off and settling for good enough for Sunday, Mm -hmm. um, I think we're we're dishonoring the role. Right. So I, I put a big responsibility on worship leaders, and and it starts with us to uh, um, or directors, or you know, I'm not a worship leader, but the people in charge. It starts on us to pursue that quality and to set the example and to encourage that and to set a pathway before your team members to mm -hmm. get to that. Yeah, no, and that takes work and intentionality. Right. And I, I love the idea of it starts with me as the leader because, yeah, there's sometimes I have to stop and go, I have a lot of things to do during the week. And, right. there, but I have to stop and go, hey, I need to, I need some practice time this week. And, right. You know, right. So that's, that's, that's great. Well, I'll definitely put the link to that book in our show notes. I think that'll be a great read. That's something that I've always told uh, people that musicians attract musicians. You know, the, right. that's just the way things go. Well, recently you were on our mutual friend Brandon's podcast. I right. really enjoyed hearing that kind of responding to the Hillsong stuff and the celebrity yeah. pastor and worship leader stuff. But you also hit on your philosophy of leading volunteers. And that struck me. I actually shared that podcast hmm. uh, with uh, the worship leader that works under me. So can you talk about that philosophy of leading volunteers and what yeah. you've learned in that? Well, I, I definitely noticed this a lot at Saddleback because one, at one, at one point, the team I was leading oversaw roughly a thousand volunteers. If you put the choir and the orchestra and drama and all the creative arts together, um, you know, it was several hundred people. And, um, you know, I, I remember one Christmas season, we did 27 services, you know, scattered over several days. And, and that's a lot of work on people. But uh, but even aside from that, Saddleback was a church where we did six services a weekend pretty regularly. And 
Um, and I, it started to, to hit me the fact that we as a staff, we all took Monday off because we're so exhausted from the weekend. But all those volunteers had to go right back to work on Monday. And um, I, I started, for me personally, I stopped taking Mondays off because I felt like I can't, I couldn't justify that for myself, that if I'm expecting this of them, I get to go rest and they don't, you know. Um, I, I do think that it's very easy for us to overlook uh, I think mo- I'm, almost everybody I know in ministry has a real heart and intentionality for volunteers, but it also, it's still very easy for us to overlook what it takes to be a solid volunteer in our church. I mean, it's easy to get volunteers who you don't can't rely on, but the ones you can rely on and count on all the time, it's a lot of effort for them. And, and uh, we only have our jobs because of them, you know, like we, we can't do our role without them. And so uh, again, it's incumbent on us to be very intentional about how we treat them. One of the things that I did for my own personal, um, just for my own personal philosophy on this, and that I encouraged others to do is to, uh, I made sure that I was volunteering at the church uh, let me back up. I'm going to say it this way. It wasn't part of my role there that I had to show up to play at a funeral on a Saturday. So when I was asked to do that, technically I was volunteering to do it. But I realized for anybody on the outside, they just saw that as my role. I was being paid to be a musician at Saddleback. That's part of my role. Um, and it dawned on me that I had to, I wanted to be able to show that I was volunteering. So I made sure to volunteer in an area of, at church that had nothing to do with music or the creative arts. So I um, I helped facilitate apologetics classes. I taught in the classes. I presented. I did presentations. Like I, I did a lot of work in the um, apologetics ministry as a volunteer because I needed to be able to know that when I'm demanding something of somebody else, that same thing is being demanded on me because I still have to go to my job the next day and I still have to do my regular work too. And um, so I do encourage people in our position when you're overseeing volunteers to make sure you're also volunteering and not that you announce it to everybody, but let it be visible. Like let people know that you're doing that as well, because I, I think it matters. I think it, it, um, it helps us to understand what they're going through too. The minute those, the minute we're the place we're volunteering starts demanding a lot on us we start to see what it feels like from the other end. And I just think that's important. And and I don't think it's okay to just do it for a season. Like, I think as long as we're in this role, we should be doing that. Now, I say that I'm new in the role at my church now, and I can't say I've done that yet in my new position, but I, I was doing that at Saddleback for all those years. Um, and so that is something that I'm I'm looking at now that I'm more entrenched in this role at my new church, is where am I going to start meeting that? that role again, except that I will say I, uh, I took the full-time worship director position. The guy left and I took his position as a volunteer. I told him I didn't want to be paid for it. Hmm. So I've, I've been volunteering in that role that's for, the last, for the last year. Um, and that's all in flux about how we're going to continue with that. But yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I hear your heart and you can't have a perspective of a volunteer unless you volunteer. And right. so that's what you're saying is, it, and it's valuable to have that perspective as you're leading these volunteers as well, you know? So right. I loved hearing that and loved hearing, hearing it now from you again. 
just the perspective of that and the heart behind it, you know, for me in, in my more than worship leader book, that's one of the things I hit on is joining your church, you know, not just being on stage, right. Being in the lives of the people and joining your church and, you know, the things I've done in the past for volunteers, like leading a small group. That's one of the things I look at and go, this is not part of my job. Right. This is part of me being a part of the body of Christ and being a part of this church. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that, that'll look different for all of us. And that, yep. but that, that is, we've got to be doing something outside of our job. And maybe it's not even at your church. Maybe it's somewhere mm, yep. else, but you know, just, just that we're putting ourselves in that same role we're demanding of other people. You know, yeah. and we, I think we forget when we're leaders and we get to pick the songs and write the songs and we're at the front of the stage and we're getting all the glory. The whole thing is fun to us. And so it's, you know, it's like uh, we sometimes think, well, come on, volunteers, that isn't this all fun? Well, it's not all as fun for them as it is for us sometimes, you know. So um, I, I do, I, it's just a big deal to me to try to be very conscious of that. I don't always get it right, but just to be, have that as a running thought in my practice. Love it. Love it. So you've been involved in music and music ministry in the church for quite a while. Things have changed quite mm -hmm. a bit over the last 20 years since you and I have connected for the first time in right. church ministry. So what are some negative things that you see about that change and what are some positive things? Oh, the negative is easy. Um, I think tracks are or uh, and, and I don't know if you use them. I don't know if anybody listen who's listening is using them. I think tracks need to be. Um, I let me put it this way. I think they need to be regulated. Um, yeah, ex explain I, that. Explain that. Well, because I don't have a problem with tracks in general. Like in you know, I I tour with um, an artist and we we have a live five piece band on stage and then the singers. And there's three songs that we recorded the album with a full big band. Well, we're not traveling with a big band for, you know, 18 horn or 13 horns just for these three songs. We put those on tracks. We tell the audience, basically, you're going to hear the, the horns from this recording, right? I don't have a problem with tracks for the right reasons. But so many churches today are relying on tracks at the exclusion of the band and at the exclusion of this goes back to the quality thing, the exclusion of doing the work to to improve the band and make the band be able to play better. And, um, you know, and again, there are some some churches don't have a band at all. They maybe got a tambourine player and a you know banjo player and they want to do some more modern worship, like use the tracks for the right reasons. But um, uh, when 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 you're a church with qualified with a certain skill of musicians and you're playing the tracks instead of letting the audience hear that I'm, I'm trying not to name names here, but I, I will say like, I've been asked to play at churches and I, I I've decided I won't do it anymore. If what I'm doing is being a prop on stage mm. while the pre-recorded keyboard parts are going out to the house or onto yeah. the live stream. Yeah. Cause I did a church watch the live stream later and i knew i was hearing the track and not what i was playing hmm. and um and i just i i don't know how that mindset became okay with us to me it shows that we are uh we are turning production into an idol um because 
there is this uh somehow there's this insistence that we have to sound at this level we have to be uh we have to sound like the latest um i don't know gateway album or whatever it is in order to be valid as a worship team and i just can't buy into any of that like i want to know what your church sounds like i don't care if it's at that quality i want to know what god has provided your church for music that's what i want to hear that to me is a genuine offering of worship from your church is here's what our church put together musically i could care less what somebody's album that was recorded in another state three years ago sounds like i don't want to hear that i'm here to worship with you yeah. not to worship with a recording i hate the idea of the voices in your head you know we're coming to the bridge we're here's the <laughs> here's the chorus again and i've met yeah and here's the problem i've met young musicians now who have never been on stage playing music without tracks they right. it's foreign to them right to, to think you can do this without tracks and so the church that used to be the greatest patron of the arts is quickly becoming um it, it just distancing itself from the arts in this way and so i just have a big fire in my belly about tracks and not about that we can't use them but about the way that they're being used yeah and the reasons i think that when you go yeah. back to motives and why i mean that's where that's where you start you, that's where you either get on the right track or the wrong track you know right. the, no pun intended there but it's like yeah the reason we're doing what we do that's a big thing that and and, and if the so I almost went to this one church years ago, big church. Yeah. Was, I, think, I think it was like 2007. And it was like, it was going to be making a jump from a church of two to 300 where I was at at this present time to a church of 11,000. Oh yeah. They bring me out and I was quickly sniffing this out going, okay, I don't know that they want me because if they really know my heart, yeah. <laughs> I'll probably be an annoying person to them. <laughs> and so I just looked across the long table at the senior pastor of this mega church. And I just simply asked him, do you want a worship leader or do you want a performer? And he, if he says performer, then that doesn't speak well of him. Right. Right. But if he says worship leader, then he's not giving me the exact expectation that he's looking for. So right. he says, well, I want a worship leader. And then he pauses and he looks up and he goes, and he looks back down at me. He goes, but you got to bring it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I think motives really dig into that. And I think that mentality, and we could do a whole nother podcast about right. this whole thing situation, but there's a lot of pressure on worship leaders now to emulate the elevation worship, Bethel worship. Right. Right. Uh, this, yeah, this the YouTube videos that our church is is watching. There's a lot. Well, of I'm glad you said that because I I'm now overseeing a lot of twenty something year old singers, and I I value their input on songs that they love and you know that are out there. Um, but I I have been having that discussion about YouTube videos specifically a lot lately, because and and even with the pastors because they. They look to that also, like, I want us to be like this. Right. And that's a very natural thing for us to do, sure. right? But what what most of them don't know that you and I know and other people listening here probably know is, one, 
that's not a Sunday morning we're watching. It's not them. That's a concert. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's a concert yeah. where they prep those 12 songs for weeks. Right. They have all this production going on. Whatever you're seeing has most likely been re-recorded in post-production. It's been mixed. It's like, you know, you're hearing things that aren't on stage. Like it's massively produced on those videos or they're just lip syncing to the recording. And it's just a way to show the songs. That's all great. But that's not Sunday morning. Half of those people on stage on Sunday morning, they're in a worship band like yours. Right. And that to me is what Sunday morning should be. Not that we don't aim for that quality. That's what I was saying before. Yeah. Like our goal needs to be as good as we can at all times. But looking at something like that and saying we have to be that every weekend, it's not realistic. It's And it's not genuine. And I want to, um, this just happened uh, a few days ago, I, I mentioned before we've started that my daughter has kind of discovered music and now she got together for the first time with another guitar playing friend and a drummer and they had their first little practice together in our garage and it just like, oh, I loved hearing it so much for the first 12 hours and then you know <laughs> um but it, you know it just brought so many memories back of being in my own garage band in junior high and oh just such a great great full circle moment for me to have hear that coming in out of my garage now and it i realized like what if i'd gone in there and said i was listening in the room like i'd love to hear you guys play for me and instead what they did was they played the album and just played along to it like you know, mm. uh, mimed along to it. Right. That's what we're offering God. Like, mm. how much does that warm his heart to think we're we're just playing along to a record? Like, I I wanted to hear my daughter mistakes and all, and I wanted to hear the effort she was doing. That's what I want to hear, and I believe that's what we should be offering uh, as worshipers on Sunday morning. Uh, and so it just it just breaks my heart to tune into these live streams and and hear tracks. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think we can get a little carried away with the yeah. tracks. I I I will say I I am all about the click. Once I found the click, I'm like No, I like the click. I love the click. I mean, I went my first decade, no, actually first 15 years of worship worship leading with no click. Yeah. And having to guess the tempo all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good with the click, but I, I'm with you on the tracks thing for sure. So yeah. what, it, uh, Tony, what's some positives you've seen with this new era and new changes that have happened the last decade or so? Well, I don't know that it's, uh, I, you'd have to tell me if it's new or not. I, I don't know. Um, I think each generation brings a renewed energy uh, to the songwriting and the music and the style. You know, I, I tend to, uh, I tend to, come off as very jaded sometimes i mean the church tends to be 10 years behind pop music and tends to chase after pop music trends we we're rarely the ones setting the trends you know in our culture um but that being said there is a lot of great production and there's a lot of a lot of really strong songs written there's a lot of weak songs being written that get passed off as great songs you know it's it is hard to filter through those because uh, I think the songs have gotten less, there's, there can be less depth in them. Certainly musically, I have no problem saying there's le less depth in the music coming out today than there was 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. When you have three or four chords per song versus, you know, a Tommy Walker song that's got all, all right. this depth to it harmonically. So just from a musical standpoint, 
it's a little shallow for my tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I I see a lot of really genuine worshipers coming out of the current trends. And I see that in these young people that I'm leading and their passion for it. And so the the fact that that is still, uh, that this generation is finding its voice, just like my generation did and the previous generation did, um, that that's always a good thing to me. Like, I, it's okay that, a, that guys like me will eventually age out of what's popular. That's fine. Um, and, um, and that's just sort of the natural progression of things, you know, but, um, but I love seeing worship leaders who are young and on fire and finding their way in that. And there's, there is something about this current season of music, which while it's not my preference, there is something that is very uh, powerful for that generation that it's easy to observe, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah, and I, I've and seen I don't know if I'm sure. saying that the way I'm I'm thinking it, but mm-hmm. no, I see that too. Uh, one of the things I've learned over the last probably two or three years, because my priority as a worship leader is never I don't ever have musicality as number one. My priority right. number one is I want to see engagement. I want to see the congregation right worshiping along with us. I don't want to entertain them. I want to inspire them. So. Yeah that that puts musicality as a lower priority for me mm-hmm. one thing i have experienced in the last couple of years is the influence of maverick city and i haven't done a lot of their songs but i did one of their the first time i did a mav city song it stretched our team and it yeah. made our musicians better so if it's singable if people can grab it that would definitely uh recommend looking for music that's a little outside of the box for you yeah i think that's something that israel houghton was doing really great for a long time was he was he was the one crossing that bridge between gospel which is so musical Mm. and my taste leaned towards that Mm -hmm. um versus the four chord rock songs i mean he was the guy right in the middle that was make bridging that gap in such a powerful way same thing it was it was very engaging and very easy to participate in, mm-hmm. but very challenging, musically challenging for the band often and and harmonically interesting. And for guys like me who have that musical background, it's it's hard to just play four chords all, all, all week. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you get bored um, quick. <laughs> um, but I but to to your point, I've said this a bunch in conversations like this. The best worship really is like is campfire songs. It's campfire singing. You know, what's the, what is the simplest thing that can get everybody to engage in? And that's why I don't have a problem with the modern songs, because a lot of it is really simple. Repeat this line over and over, kind of, you know, over these four chords. I used to joke about a song I love from 20 years ago or whatever. Uh, I could sing of your love forever. We used mm-hmm. to in the green room, we'd sing it as I could sing the, I could play these four chords forever, <laughs> I could, you know? Um, so I don't really don't have a problem with that because it's, it is very useful for the task that we are engaging in, which is getting non-musicians, non-singers, uh, a platform to worship musically. And that's a big deal. And that's where my personal preferences can't play a part in it, you know? Right. Right. And, yeah. And so I'm very cognizant of that. Um, but you know, but there was a day when the music was a little more. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I get that. Well, in this season of ministry, a big part of my job is to mentor young worship leaders and church right. leaders 
So what advice and direction do you generally give to worship leaders these days? Um, uh, the first one, first part I'll say is uh, connected to what we were just talking about, because I, I have talked quite a bit to some of my team about this, which is um, learn to get to listen past the production, because songs today that are attracting your generation are based on a, let's say, algorithm. They're based on certain factors that producers know sell records. You know, uh, if, if you have any doubt of what I'm saying, go find the 20 most popular songs on YouTube and tell me how many of them start with a pad, Hmm. you know, and then how many of them has followed the same form, you know, verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, you know, it's, it's, there's so much formula, not a bad thing, but you, to be aware of that um, and just cognizant of it, that there's a lot of formula, there's a lot of, uh, again, algorithms that we're following because this is what works for our modern culture and this is what sells. And don't don't be, uh, don't be fooled about it being a business. It's definitely a business. Um, but learn to listen past that and identify the song itself. First of all, learn to identify the text. If you, when you come across a new song, do a little Bible study on it. Find out which verses it's based on. See how accurate the text is. Be um, uh, and and uh, because there are so many great, powerful songs. This just happened in the car yesterday. I had two young worship leaders, both in their twenties, in my car, and I was playing um, an older thing from mid two thousands. And I said, "What do you guys think of this song?" And I think it's a great song, but it's produced twenty years ago, so it doesn't sound like today at all. That was the thing they couldn't get past. It took a bit of listening before they could start to hear the song itself, because what they were hearing was the sound, you know. And um, I've often thought it would be fun to take some of the best songs from today and do really bad demos of them and just try to pitch those. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, if you need someone to do that, I'm available. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because th- that's the truth. If it was me singing and playing guitar on the best song out today, yeah. You give it a second listen. So right. I do try to get them to listen past the production. Don't be afraid to dig into old material that's great because it, the the worship world is a lot richer than the songs that are just coming out today. Well, I really appreciate uh, your encouragement and even challenge in that. And I, I actually take that uh, myself and look at, look at myself as I lead uh, our musicians, make sure we continue to grow as musicians, not get complacent and lazy. One of the things that I always attribute to you is the concept of rehearsal and practice. I remember being in a workshop of yours in the two thousands and you, you articulated what I already knew, but it was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what that, that's how you say it we practice on our own but rehearsals when we come and we put it together right and so yeah i remember getting that and i've implemented that and i've even put put that uh that's kind of woven into parts of my more than a band book you know that oh good yeah it's it's about the idea of rehearsing together and practice what you do on your own so right yeah and I, i talk about that a bit in my book too because I I think the reason any of us play music is because it's fun. So I I don't put a lot of stock in people talking about the sacrifice of music ministry. Like sacrifice is showing up at 4 a.m. to clean the toilets. But, you know, showing up 
to play guitar and have fun with your friends like that's it's not quite the same thing um yeah and, i always tell i tell our team like if we're not having fun yeah doing this we're not doing it right right yeah and music is fun so mm -hmm. there's no getting past that so the sacrifice is in the effort we put in mm -hmm. to be good at what we do on sunday morning that's right yeah so we can have fun right with right. with our with our church and that's yeah, that's totally. what it's all about so well dude thank you so much for your coming on here and sharing your heart and wisdom and thoughts and thanks for uh just your influence and your years of church ministry and what you're doing now in your current church grateful for for what you're doing for the kingdom man thank you i appreciate that a lot it's really good to reconnect with you too yes sir well thanks for coming on the podcast all right man we'll see you soon Music is powerful. With just a few notes put together in the right sequence and timing, it can tug at our heartstrings and change the atmosphere of a room. That's why I agree with Tony's strong opinions about continually raising the bar on musicianship in our worship. I also love his example and call for us to be the church along with our volunteers. We should definitely be more than worship leaders and volunteer our time outside of the silo of our worship ministry. Here's what I said in my book about that. While I am employed full-time in the ministry, I have led small groups for my church. This is not something I do out of obligation. I do not consider it part of my job or weekly work schedule. I do it to join my church. I do it because I want to get connected to people outside of a worship set. Being a better musician and volunteering at my church is not a huge sacrifice. It's a responsibility that I'm privileged to have. It's actually more than a responsibility. It's a response. It's worship. Stay tuned for the next episode of the More Than a Worship Leader podcast. I'd greatly appreciate you subscribing and sharing. Thanks for listening.